You're listening to Michelle Redfern and Mel Butcher on Lead to Soar, bringing you the best leadership advice and mentorship from around the world. Learn more at leadtosoar.com. Well, hello, everyone. It's lovely to be with you again today. It's Michelle Redfern here. And for those of you joining us live, a big hi on screen. And for those of you who are listening in later on on our podcast, on the Lead to Soar podcast, hello to you. I'm thrilled a bit today to be with one of the members of Lead to Soar, Karen Percy. And some of you, particularly those of you in Australia, may know Karen because she's a really experienced journalist and has been... Well, I hate saying been around for a few decades because, you know, we don't want to date ourselves, do we, Karen? But she has been around for a few decades. Karen and I are going to have a conversation today really based in what trauma-informed communication looks like, an essential, essential part of the toolkit for 21st century leaders. So that's what we're going to cover today. Karen, welcome to the pod. Tell us about trauma, though, because this is a really important part of your work. And I'm, I know from my conversations with you, even the last one, I'm thinking, gee, I hadn't ever thought about trauma-informed communication and how useful that would have been for me in, in my career, having dealt with all sorts of different scenarios. And we might think about trauma as car accidents or plane crashes or, you know, war zones or things like that. But trauma happens in everyday circumstances and in workplaces. So can you tell us about trauma-informed communication and those skills, please? Trauma-informed communication, taking a trauma-informed approach is basically, it's kind of putting yourself in somebody's shoes. It's trying to understand why somebody might be behaving the way they're doing, you know, whether it's to a call centre. You know, when I was a journalist, I dealt with, a, you know, I was on fire fields, I was in flooding, I was at car accidents, all manner of things. It was very evident that what I was dealing with was, you know, confronting. But, you know, call centre staff, um, insurance assessors, anybody who's having to deal with people who've been traumatised or witnessed something, and so many of us have. You I mean, you look at the prevalence of family violence, content warning, content warning, content warning. That's something that's really important to lay down at this juncture because there is going to be difficult content perhaps. So if there is anything that might be triggering for anybody listening or watching, please look after yourself. Make sure you've got the things that you need to support you because, you know, people who've had sexual assault and other violent assaults. So there's lots of different ways that trauma manifests itself in people. So there's the obvious kinds of things that are happening. But so taking a trauma-reformed approach is, is essentially trying to understand why a person is behaving the way they are, what might explain that. And then that helps you to, in fact, deal with them. So people who've experienced trauma often are inconsistent in the things they talk about. They might say one thing the next minute, sort of in a journalistic sense, they'll say, oh, this happened. And then, you know, two minutes later, they say something completely different. And it doesn't mean they've lied. It doesn't mean they're wrong. It just means their brain is having trouble processing or reprocessing that. So trauma has a physical manifestation. If you've been in that flight, fright, flee kind of mode, if you've been in extreme stress like that, and look, I need to point out I'm not a psychologist, I'm not a psychiatrist, I'm not a, a counsellor. I've been a peer supporter at the ABC. I was a peer supporter for seven years where we were trained to look out for our colleagues who were dealing with traumatic and difficult stories to be an educated ear and a sympathetic shoulder. So I've got a very good understanding 
of what journalists and lawyers and unionists and others go through when they are talking to people who have had uh, traumatic experiences. So I was the chair of the Dart Centre Asia Pacific for two years. That's an organisation that looks specifically at journalists and trauma. And I've done a couple of Dart fellowships in the United States at Columbia University, which is very specifically working with international journalists and the trauma that we have experienced. But getting into this space, and I'm really, really passionate about ensuring that uh, people understand the impacts of trauma on themselves, vicarious trauma, but also on the people around them. Um, you know, you might suddenly see somebody's behaviour change quite dramatically. They're drinking or they're drugs or, you know, they're driving in a weird way. Why? Why would that be? So when we understand where somebody's coming from, we can have a, a better response and understand them better and treat them better and make sure that all around, for journalists, it's much more ethical, it's much more empathetic, but for all of it, it's just being that much kinder, but understanding why somebody might, you might think they're being just a giant jerk, but in fact, there's something more to that. There's something going on, yeah. So when I worked at the NAB, National Australia Bank for our uh, overseas viewers, and ABC that Karen's referring to as the Australian Broadcasting um, Corporation. See, she knows her audience. <laughs> well done. <laughs> I do, I do. <laughs> so when I was working at the bank, we had one of the first domestic violence leave policies in the corporate world, so quite some time ago, and I was very, very proud of that. However, one of the things that became evident was that it was a great policy, but not a lot of people knew about it or, importantly, what to do with it. And at the time, the group that I was working in, the leadership group of which I was a part, we, we thought would be useful to have someone come and talk to us. So we had an amazing woman, Jocelyn Bignold, actually. She's the CEO of Macaulay Community Services for Women here in Victoria, where I live. And Jocelyn talked about three stages, which is really important for leaders in organisations to know. And, and I'm getting there, listeners. I'm, I'm drawing a, a long bow here, but I think there's some important stuff. The first thing is to recognise. So I'm, I'm recognising when a person and we know that predominantly women are the victims of sexual assault, violence, and et cetera, in the home. So recognising when she may be a victim, having the skills and the tools and the techniques to respond to that recognition. So understanding how to communicate with the person who is clearly, we recognise some behavioural changes or whatever it may be. And then the refer, who do I refer her to for help because clearly I'm not a skilled person and I am talking about myself in the first person because I found this really useful is that what you're saying around trauma Karen is that recognize it know what to how to respond and then know how to refer is that is that what we're looking for that's a really great set of principles I guess the one thing I would just say as a bit of a caveat is that these kind of things are very personal, they're very sensitive, and sometimes you don't want your boss knowing about it. So it's brilliant to have EAPs. It's uh, Peer support programs are actually the best because I understand what my colleagues were doing. Even though I might not do their exact job, I knew the workflows and I knew some of the personalities they're dealing with. So it's just like, oh, okay, you've got that person on the desk today. Okay, that puts it in a different context. So peer support programs are actually some of the most effective that you can do. There are different ways that they are set up. Some are quite formalised where, you know, your peers are actually given, you know, a certain number of hours a week to have kind of sessions or they can be very informal, like the one I took part in, which was literally me picking up the phone saying, hey, what a fantastic story you did today. A bit tough, though. 
you know, how you doing kind of stuff. And in, invariably it's, oh, yeah, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. And then there's a delay. So it's, it's understanding that there's no one size fits all. Everybody responds differently. Um, some people never respond. So some people might have an immediate response. Some might never respond. Some might be weeks or months down the track. So that's where you've kind of got to figure out it's just like what's different? Why am I feeling that's different? So the only thing about that RRR, because I love it, I love that kind of alliteration, is that, you know, you need to be very confident as an employee or somebody who is experiencing trauma that there's the confidentiality that by owning your trauma, you are not sacrificing or sabotaging your career because that's everybody's fear. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, and I think this comes back to you know, another call out listeners, which is as leaders in organisations, we really have to start thinking about what are the skills that people need to navigate workplaces. And it was interesting that you, you brought up insurance because one of my biggest clients is one of Australia's major insurers and you know and I am a I am a woman from the contact center world uh, and I think about those people who are listening to stories of Australia has had extraordinary natural disasters in the last few years you know the floods the fires and so that vicarious trauma that contact center staff experience you know I wonder and I don't know but I wonder leaders if there's something more that we can do about saying let's recognize that vicarious trauma exists and how might we skill our people to recognize when a colleague whether it's a team member if it's for leadership training whatever it may be but how might we recognize that this is the thing and put the steps in place to have a set of skilled folks who can be there as a soft landing point should a person say actually I'm not doing okay and I I need even if it's just a quick think out loud debrief to diffuse or you know whatever it may be so organisational leaders listening, if they're thinking, oh, yeah, I want to do that, what should they do, Karen? What's your advice? You need somebody who's an expert in communications and in trauma. So what I do when I'm um, doing webinars or I'm, I'm talking to people about this, doing my trauma training, is giving them steps like here's what you do before you know you're about to speak to somebody. So if your call centre team today is expecting a whole lot of people calling in about XYZ because there's been floods in such and such a place, it's actually, okay, well, we know that they're going to be trees down. They might have lost all of their family photos. So understanding what you're going into. So that's, you know, preparing as best you can ahead of time. And then there's great tips and tricks for during the process, reflective kind of language about I can understand and I can hear that you're really finding this very difficult. You're not alone. You're not feeling this on your own. Giving them validation. It's just like, I can totally understand what you're going through. And power and agency and control. People who've been traumatised or going through difficult times are clinging to anything they can control. So any kind of agency that you can give them, just taking time to listen to their story is a really important thing. If it's not over the phone, for example, if you're a a lawyer taking an affidavit from a difficult client, is what's the environment they're in? If they're in a big stuffy CBD downtown office that's full of dusty books, that might be a bit intimidating. So just having a think about how you can give agency to people and boundaries. What are the boundaries about what they do and they don't want to say when you're speaking to them? After the fact, I actually think that's one of the most important things we need to be doing is checking with people afterwards. It's kind of like, you know, we had a really long, difficult conversation. 
I didn't quite get the name of your dog right, so I just wanted to... So you've got an excuse to call back. As a journalist, I always did. It was just like, oh, I didn't... What year was that? The tape fell out when we were doing that and always check back in. But also, after you've had a conversation with somebody where you've stirred up a whole lot of things or they've told you is, is kind of sort of saying, okay, well, thank you so much. That's been hard. I've got everything I think I need. Um, what's the rest of your day like? You really should do something good for yourself compensate for this and that's when you find out you know they may have just been divorced or the cat has died and they're living alone or you know so having an understanding about when you've stirred up trauma in somebody what they're going back to so that you can understand okay well you need to and that's when you check in so so those kinds of very simple steps and then knowing when you need to hand it over to somebody else. And their techniques, their techniques and skills, yes. And like any other leadership skill with discipline practice can be mastered. But I think the call out here for me, again, listeners, is we want to engage the greatness in others all the time. We want to bring the best out in people. You know, circumstances and the forces uh, around us will dictate that sometimes our team members are going to undergo hardship, trauma, have to listen to or do hard things. And what I think is great as we evolve as a human race is starting to normalise these conversations to say it's okay not to be okay, but creating that culture in your organisation as well to say, okay, we're here and we're going to do this properly. We've got a trauma-informed team. We've got contact officers, if that's what you want to call them. That's my age showing. You've got a Karen or Michelle if you want to have a bit of a debrief at any time. If you're in the contact centre, you'd sign yourself out and go for a walk, whatever it may be. But I think normalising the fact that people will undergo vicarious trauma and they can have methods and skilled people, but the culture of our organisation accepts that that is part of what we're doing and we have processes, policies and support for you. So I think it's a really important thing. So again, more skills to be added to your leadership um, toolkit, uh, folks. And they're not onerous. They're really not. It's very simple. And that's the beautiful thing about that kind of education and awareness and training is that once you learn it, it's just the most powerful thing because you know you can do good. You can do as best you can. It's not always going to be perfect. There's no perfect solution to anything. But another important part of it is is understanding good self-care. And again, that's everybody's different, you know. Of course, you need to eat right and you need to sleep right and you need to exercise and all the usual stuff. But find what works for you. For example, for me, when I was having difficulty, for example, if I was covering a difficult court case and I'd done the first part of my my deadlines, my radio, my first versions of stories were out and about, and then I had to kind of reset myself for the afternoon workload, was, yes, go for a walk. And I might have some music in my ears. And it was just like, well, is it Gloria Gaynor, I will survive? Or is it Paul Weller, I need to lament and cry? And it's okay to allow yourself to feel all the feels. I have a, an album on my phone of photographs that make me happy. It's my mum holding me as a baby. I lost my mum a couple of years ago and I just love her dearly. And then it's a very special place in Canada. And then there's just, and it just, every time I look at them, I, there's, there's a physical change in me when I look at those photographs. So that there are simple, simple things you can do to assist in getting yourself through the day to then be able to figure out, okay, what do I need to do for myself next to ensure that I'm happy and healthy? And you you can't always be taking on other people's trauma and you need to be able to let it go. 
Agreed. And and again, elevating this to the leadership lessons, I want the leaders on the call to be really thinking about, are you creating and sustaining a culture where it's okay not to be okay and where conversations are easily had about, I'm not okay. And some people may want to talk it out. Other people want to go for a walk, whatever it may be. But we're dealing with humans, flesh, blood, emotions. And we really want all of the humans who are our team members to be able to operate in a way that works for them. And sometimes, you know, they need to see that as leaders, we're humans and we're going to accept that, hey, I'm having a down day or I'm having a moment or I've just heard something really, really disturbing and I need some time out or I have to do something and I, I want to prepare for it. Can I prepare with you, team leader, because I'm about to go into a difficult conversation? I recall in my own history having to make people redundant and you know one of the reasons I left one of my corporate jobs was I thought I just don't have another restructure and redundancy in me you know I I got really sick of telling people you no longer have a job you know where where your role is redundant and that is traumatizing for them but for me you know in hindsight I'm gonna say well actually there was probably a bit of trauma there but it wasn't okay to say hey I'm feeling really sad about what I just had to do 200 people now no longer work for this organization so you know we have all sorts of scenarios that go on all the time in organizations that create trauma and I know people might be thinking as I said at the start of this segment was that maybe we think of trauma as plane crashes, train crashes, car crashes, and all those kind of things. But we're diverse humans. It can be so different for for so many people. And as leaders of organisations, we do have to recognise that we are putting our people in the path of trauma and experiencing vicarious trauma. So what do we do about that? We need to gain the skills from the right people and then help our people in our organisation be the best that they can be. Absolutely. And it's it's so important, Michelle, what you say there about it has to be authentic. We have to really yeah. ask, are you okay? Not just check that box and say, fantastic, you've done it for the year. Yeah, not on one day a year. Thank you very much. Yeah. No, it's got to be 365 and it's got to be holistic and it's got to, you know, every human is different. So you've got to understand that people are going to respond in different ways. Sometimes it might be a simple matter of, you know what, go home. Fill your fridge, do your washing. You've worked crazy hours for the last little while. Or it might be, you know what, we'll we'll keep you in the building, but, you know, we've got this special project we need to do. You know, we need to actually really understand that people can grow. You know, there is this concept of post-traumatic growth and the resilience that you can build. Well, we hear stories about it all the time, don't we? We see lots of this happened and this happened to me. You know, I became this new, better version of myself because of this, you know, incident or trauma that occurred. Yeah, I mean, we can't assume that. Not everybody's going to have that. But just making sure that we understand that different people are going to different to respond in different ways and, and do our best to be as supportive as we can be throughout the year. But it actually doesn't take a lot to make a really big difference and I think that we need to think that it's not an impediment, it's not a burden, this is just another way of supporting our staff, giving them the skills in what is an increasingly difficult, complicated world. And I will add to that too, folks, that, you know, I think the most underinvested in people are our frontline team leaders. You know, I have been in and around organizations for well 40 years a bit longer than you Karen but you know and and I see (laughs) that we give a lot of training but if I think about the largest portion of our workforce our frontline workers are being supervised and led by our frontline managers and they 
often are the ones with the least amount of access to this kind of critical training. And I think it's super, super important. And by crikey, it's it's leadership skills, it's life skills, and, and you're just going to create a, a whole different culture in your organisation if you help your frontline managers build these essential skills. So, so important. Absolutely. Mm. And remembering that some of those people who are, you know, taking those frontline, not the managers, they might be in some of your, your entry-level jobs. They might be very, very young. So they don't may not necessarily have the skills you assume they might have. So I think that's one thing too, is that we need to just not make assumptions about what people's knowledge and understanding is and actually give them a really very secure set idea about what we're going to do for you and what we expect from you as well. Well, Karen Percy, we've had a very good conversation, you and I, and uh, covered a lot of ground today. So thank you so much for your contributions to our network um, and, of course, to this session. Thanks, Karen. Thank you. It's been fabulous. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Lead to Soar. We sincerely appreciate your honest, positive reviews. You can leave questions at leadtosoar.com for Michelle and Mel to answer on future episodes. Until next time, we hope you'll use what you've learned here and lead to soar.